We've been studying this book of James over the last several weeks, and uh, the subtitle for our study in James is uh, Viewing the Invisible. The idea in James, as we've already seen in the first two chapters, uh, I think we see real succinctly there at the end of chapter one, the idea is that if we have faith, right, if we humbly and meekly, as it says at the end of James one, if we meekly will receive the implanted word of God, right, if we will receive the implanted word of God, that word of God takes root in us, and then it produces this work, it produces this action that is visible to other people. At the end of James chapter 1, it, it talks about the fact that if we have received the implanted word of God, that our tongues will be able to be bridled, right? It talks about the fact that we will care for those who were many times set aside, the, the, the orphan and the widow, and that we will work to remain unstained by the world, that there's this fruit of our faith, that there is a way to view the invisible transformation that has taken place inside of us as the word of God is implanted in us, it produces these works. And in fact, as we studied James chapter 2 last week, we saw that, that it is possible to put on display what's going on inside us. In fact, in James two eighteen, he says, some of you will say, I have faith without works. James says, but by my works, I will show you my faith, right? I will prove to you that I believe that God is true, that God is who he says he is, that Jesus has come and died for our sin and risen again and has given to me transformational, redemptive life. I can put that on display by the way I live. We don't believe that our works save us, but we do believe that if we've been saved by the grace of God, works will be made manifest in us. We also saw in James 2 last week, one of the, one of the sort of practical examples of that fruit of the implanted word of God was that the, the, uh, the, the, the impartiality, the ability to look at everybody and recognize that they are all created in the image of God, that they are all worthy of love and respect and kindness and welcome and familyhood. As we move on into chapter 3, we will see the introduction of one of the one of the works that is made manifest being the way we speak to each other. And this isn't something new that he's introducing in chapter 3. In fact, we will see all throughout the book of James, he talks almost nonstop about the importance of our speech. But it is centralized and localized here in a, in a really clear way in James 3, 1 through 12, our core text this morning. And I don't want us to miss it. Because essentially what he's saying here is that our speech gives evidence to what we believe. Despite our claims, despite what we may affirm, despite the things we may write or the bumper stickers we may slap on the back of our car, the way in which we talk gives evidence to what's truly going on in our heart. It gives evidence to what's truly going on in our heart. I had kind of an embarrassing thing happen to me a few years ago. I was, uh, when we were living in Long Beach, uh, we were renting a house down there and we got new neighbors uh, to our right and they moved in and they seemed really nice. I didn't know them very well at first, but they had this huge dog uh, that they kept in their garage. So they kept it in the backyard in the, and it was like a drive-in garage back there. And this dog uh, would bark all night long. It was like they were, they were new. I was trying to get along, trying to be friendly, whatever. But this dog, starting at about sundown, the dog would bark all night. And it wasn't just like a constant barking. It was like a roof, roof, roof. You know, that's my best impression of that. But the dog, it was like kind of staccato and staggered, but it would go on for hours. And so... After a couple of nights of this, not being able to sleep, being woken and startled, I, I walked over to my neighbor's house and I knocked on the door and I was like, hey, I'm Darren. I, you know, I'm really sorry, but your dog in the garage is barking all night, like, like constantly and consistently. I can't fall asleep. I really need you to do something. And the new neighbor was like, well, that's just how that dog is. He just barks. That's just the way he is. And I'm like, 
right? But it's, it's wrecking me. It's wrecking me. Please, can you just give it a bone or something? I don't know, do something. And the guy's like, well, I don't really know what to tell you. Like, that's why we keep him in the garage because he barks. I'm like, it's right next to my bedroom, you know? And uh, so this goes on for a couple of weeks. And then finally one night, you guys, I'm ashamed to admit this, but finally one night I snap, right? And I get up, I'm in my underpants. I go out into the backyard and I'm screaming over the fence. And I'm just going, you stupid dog, you have to shut up. I haven't slept in three weeks. You are killing me. If you can't be quiet, I'm going to climb over the fence and I'm going to strangle you with my own two hands, you know? And then I felt better. And so I went back... uh, I went back to my room and I, and I tried to go to sleep and, uh, you know, I don't know that it made any difference to the dog. He just kept barking. But the next morning at breakfast, my kids were all sitting around the dinner table and one of my kids goes, did you hear that last night? And I thought, oh no, I'm caught. And he goes, the neighbor got up in the middle of the night and was screaming at his dog. I thought he was going to kill his dog. And I realized that my kids thought that that tirade had been accomplished by my neighbor. They didn't know it was my voice. And so I had this moment of thinking like, do I tell them, no, that was me that wanted to murder the dog or do I just let this thing play? And all the kids start talking and they're like, no, we heard it too. He must be a terrible man. He must hate animals. We can't go, we shouldn't even talk to him. He's such a bad person. And I realized that what they were describing was actually, they were describing the inside of my heart as it had been put on display by my voice, but they were blaming it on the neighbor. And I, I felt guilty, but at the time I didn't tell him it was me because I just wanted that to go. You know, like I don't want to, they're watching this this morning. I'm, I'm sorry to reveal it to you this way, kids, but we can, we can get you therapy or whatever later. Um, in James chapter three, there is a very clear connection between what comes out of our mouth And what's going on in our heart? He begins in James chapter three, verses one and two with a warning about teaching. He says here in verses one and two, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He says there is a temptation here to use your voice to guide and shape and direct other people. And you need to approach that with caution. Well, why? Why does he tell them they need to approach with caution? Well, the the key is that all throughout the Bible, words have power. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, right? In the mouth of God, his words speak creation into existence. He says, let there be light, and there is light. He says, let's separate the earth from the water, and it is separate. It is his speech that shapes and molds the earth. Not only that, but then in Genesis 2, he gives man the opportunity to use his voice to shape and mold the animals, right? If you look at uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, God says uh, to Adam, it says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to, to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. From the beginning, both God and man, his creation created in his image, were using their voices to shape and mold creation. They were using their voices in a productive way. That is part of who God is. He uses his speech for transformation and for creation. So there is a weight and a gravity that comes with our words because we are made in the image of God, because he's invited us to use our voices to shape and mold the world around us like he does in his image. That's why the the writers of the Proverbs will again and again caution us about the use of our voice. I'll give you just a few of these. This isn't even exhaustive, but I'll do it rapidly. Proverbs 10, 11 says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, 
but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 11.9 says, With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge the righteous are delivered. Proverbs 12.18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 13.3 Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. We understand that words have power. So in the first two chapters of James, where it's saying, if you've received the implanted word of God, if you have faith in Christ, you will do these works that put that faith, that internal faith on external display. It's important for you to understand that words are works. All throughout the Bible, words are works. Jesus himself draws a connection between the speech of man and what's going on in his heart. In Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, and here he's speaking to the Pharisee, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus says it's from here that the mouth speaks. When we listen to our own voices, and when we listen to the voices of other people, their words are evidence of what's happening in their heart. Jesus makes that connection very clear. Even though we would say anatomically there's not a connection between the tongue and the heart, we would absolutely affirm that Jesus says spiritually there is a direct connection, an HDMI cable that runs from the tongue to the heart. That everything that comes out of the mouth is being produced by the treasure that's stored up there. In Matthew 15, verse 10, Jesus called all the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a pit. Why does James begin James chapter 1, verses 1 and 2? Knowing the teaching of his brother, the Lord Jesus. He's saying not everybody should be a teacher. Not everybody should think that they need to instruct other people. Why? Because we've seen time and time again that what some people do with their tongues is lead people blindly to a place they themselves don't know how to get. He says, Jesus says, they're blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, verse 15 of Matthew 15, explain the parable to us. He said, are you also still without understanding? Jesus says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. 
James says at the beginning of James chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should presume to be teachers. He's not saying that there aren't some of us, some of you listening today, who aren't called and gifted and appointed to be teachers. We saw that in Ephesians. That God has appointed apostles and teachers to guide and shape the body of Christ. Some of you have that calling. I certainly have that calling. I've recognized that calling. But what he's saying here is a caution to say, you need to not sort of look forward to teaching because the teachers will be judged with a greater weight. He says, not many of you should become teachers. This is James 3, 1, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why? Because words have power. And there are people who want to be teachers because they they want to inflate their own ego or they like the sound of their own voice or because they want to manipulate people or because they want to build fame for themselves. There are people who, who want to be teachers because they want the fame of it or the reputation of it. James says, be very careful. Not only is he saying to his listeners, you should be very careful about being a teacher, but he's also saying to the rest of us who are listening, we should be very careful about who we let teach us. We'll tell you in this day and age, anybody who has a webcam can be a teacher. Anybody who can gather a small group of people around or who can self-publish a book on Amazon can be a teacher. And what's happening is that our world is running rampant. Our world has disregarded this warning. Our world has disregarded this warning that says, be careful you who are teachers. Why why should we be careful? Look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble right out of the gate. James is receiving the implanted word with meekness and he's admitting none of us get it right all the time. We stumble in many ways, including what we say. We shouldn't presume to be teachers because sooner or later we're going to blow it. Sooner or later we're going to say the wrong thing. Sooner or later we're going to walk outside in our underwear and shout at the neighbor's dog. Be very careful about you who presume to be teachers because you will put things on display that are false. If you're not called to it, if you're not gifted for it, and even if you are, There is a danger. He says, be careful. I I will just, as a little aside here, say that that I am greatly troubled and worried about the amount of people that I talk to who are being misled by false teachers. Because you can go on the internet and you can find somebody now who will say anything you want them to say. You can go online and order a book by someone who will endorse anything anything you want to hear. And and we have this desire, these itching ears to have people say to us the things and to affirm to us the things we already think. And we surround ourselves with people who just repeat back to us the things we already believe. Can I tell you church? Can I tell you that I look at this caution and I say, I have to be like dangerously careful. I have to be overly cautious, both about what I teach And also who I'm being taught by. I have to be very careful that the the voices I'm listening to are voices that are aligned with the word of God and only the word of God. Because we live in a world where everyone presumes to teach. Everyone presumes to teach on their Facebook, on their Twitter, on their podcast, on their Zoom calls. Everyone presumes to teach. And James says, be careful. Because we all stumble in many ways. Because we are fallible. Because we are flawed. Because we are broken. There is caution. Be careful what you do with your tongue. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. None of us are perfect. And so it is with caution we approach teaching. 
is with caution we approach the things that we are leading other people towards. Let's take that warning with the seriousness with which James gives it. He goes on to give us a couple of illustrations. I was, I was telling somebody earlier today, the hardest part for me in preaching is thinking up these little illustrations, that stupid story about the dog, trying to remember some of that stuff. James comes up with good illustrations here in the text, so I don't have to do that. He gives us three illustrations. The first two are in verses three through five. Let's look at what he says. He says in verse three, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. He gives us uh, two, two different examples, one in agricultural and one in nautical. He talks about the rudder of a ship and he talks about the bit in the mouth, in the mouth of a horse. He says, you've got this horse that's got all this power and all this strength that could go anywhere he wants and you put this tiny bit in its mouth and all of a sudden you have the ability to guide and direct, to harness that power in a, in a productive way. He says, the tongue has the ability, just like the rudder of a ship, just like the bit in the mouth of a horse, the tongue has the ability to harness the potential of, of the body, the, harness the potential of the created being made in the image of God towards productivity, right? That if you can't control the tongue, he's just said it. Anyone who can control their tongue is a perfect man, right? So if you can control the tongue, the rest of the body will follow. Just like the bit in the mouth of the horse makes the rest of the horse follow. Just like that tiny rudder on the bottom of the aircraft carrier controls the direction that the aircraft carrier takes. He says the tongue is like that. It steers the rest of the ship. It leads the potential of the rest of the life. It is vital that we understand the power of our words, that words are works. He says here, these are small things, but they have a big influence. Small things, but they have a big influence. Our tongue is a tiny part of who we are. But I, I don't know a lot of people that spend a ton of time working on their speech. I think most of us spend our time working on, on other sort of external things. And yet our speech controls the potential, the, the, the profitability of the rest of our lives. He says, be really careful. And one of, the, one of the things he talks about here that this tongue has the potential to do is to bless God. If we jump down to verse, in, and we look at verse nine, it says, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. That's verses nine and 10. Now, obviously there's a rebuke in that. I don't want to talk about the rebuke. Let's first talk about the upside. He says here, the tongue is like the bit in the mouth of the horse. Or the tongue is like the rudder on the bottom of the ship. And it has the ability, even though it's small, to control and have a big impact. And the biggest impact that he gives us in this verse, and don't skip over it, is the ability to do the very thing we were created for, to bless God. You and I have the ability with our tongues to glorify the creator of the universe, to acknowledge him for who he is and what he's done, to sing his praise, to shout his glory, to declare and reveal him in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. We have the opportunity to honor God. That's a huge, don't, don't race past it. There's the potential for us to bless God with our tongues. That's a big deal. But not only do we have the potential to bless God, God with our tongues, we also have the ability to bless one another. In fact, the contrast he's painting in 9 and 10, he goes, we bless God and we curse one another. We bless God with our tongue and we curse one another. He says, this ought not be so. Well, what's he, what's he saying? Well, he's saying what should happen is we should use that same tongue, which has the potential for blessing God, to bless others as well. I think, I think in our lives, we've all been blessed by people. You can probably think of people right now 
in your life who have blessed you. I certainly can. I think of people in our church body. I can think of people who on a regular basis use their tongues. And I, and I don't just mean audible speech. Maybe it's in the type of an email. Maybe it's in the sending of a text. Maybe it's in a conversation. But we got people in our church uh, that are incredible at this. Men like George Warren or Greg Rhodes. I got an email a couple of weeks ago uh, separately from Mick and Relaine Borsma that made me weep with joy. And that, that's not to sing their praises, but it is to say we have people in our church, and you know this, you've probably been affected by them as well, who take their speech, who take their communication and use it to bless. I've been blessed. I, I actually went back and read a couple of those kinds of emails this morning before church and was brought to tears again by the ways in which God's people in this place have used their tongues or their communication to build me up, to build other people up, to bless me and encourage me, to pray for me, to guide me. I'm guessing that you at home can immediately think of a few people. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coach. Maybe it's a teacher. Someone who along the way came alongside you. I can think of pivotal moments in my life where people looked at me and said, Darren, you should be sharing the gospel. You have the gift of evangelism. And a light bulb came on over my head. I can think of pivotal times in my life where I'm sitting across the table and someone said, Darren, you should be teaching the word of God. You have the gift of teaching. And the light bulb came on. These are people who used their tongues to shape and mold me in the image of God. And you've probably got examples of that too. Think about Ephesians 1. All of Ephesians 1. What was all of Ephesians 1 when we studied it together? If you're new, you'll have to go back and watch that or look at the text yourself. But all of Ephesians 1 was Paul saying to us, you have been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. You've been chosen and adopted and appointed and empowered and raised up and seated at the right hand of God, reminding us who we are and whose we are. You can't read Ephesians 1 without feeling like you could climb the tallest mountain. Now, Paul could have done anything with Ephesians 1, and what he chooses to do with the very beginning of his letter is to use his speech to bless and encourage, to shape and mold the lives of those who were listening, and so should we. It's a small thing, this, this speech, but it shows what's going on in our hearts. He says here, we have the gift and the joy of blessing God. It's why we were created. I'd love for you to stop this morning and think about the ways and and times, maybe even just in the last couple of days, that people have used their words, written or spoken, to warm your heart, to grow your heart, to transform your life. I have moments like that. Shouldn't we all be using our tongues to bless and not to curse? Shouldn't we all be using our words to shape and mold the lives of other people? And yet so often what happens, and the reason why this rebuke is necessary, so often what happens is that we use our words in a completely destructive way. And that's the third illustration he gives here. The two positive illustrations are the rudder and the bit or the bridle. The negative illustration is the illustration of a spark. Look at what it says in verse 5. He says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. As we were studying this uh, together as a team, I, I did sort of raise my hand at this point and say, I mean, we're talking about seahorses here. Is he saying somebody along the way has tamed a seahorse? Because I'd like to see that. 
I think the sentiment is man has the ability to tame the animals. We've seen it happen in a lot of different contexts. But look at verse 8. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This tongue in our mouth has the ability to mold and to shape, to bless God and to bless others. We can use it that way and in so doing, reveal the character and nature of Christ to our neighbors. Put him on display. But the tongue, even though it is small, also has the potential to be a spark that sets the whole world on fire. And not in a good way. Listen to the way this is described. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. We talk sometimes about a snowball, a thing that rolls downhill and builds. What James is describing is that our tongue has the ability not to be a a, a snowball, but a fireball that builds and builds and destroys as it goes. He says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. That world of unrighteousness is the idea of a whole world of immorality. And as I was processing and reading and thinking about this, the idea there is that the tongue in our world and in every age has endorsed every kind of immorality. That every kind of immorality you can conceive of, every kind of sin against God and against man has at one point or another found an endorsement and an affirmation in the tongues of man. You can find somebody online to back you up for any kind of wickedness you want to get into. Because there are all kinds of people who've presumed to be teachers. He says it's a world of unrighteousness. And I would say that means the idea of endorsing every kind of immorality and every kind of wickedness. The tongue is set among our members, staining our whole body. Have you said things in your life that you felt like left a residue on you? that you felt like changed the course of your life. He says here, it not only stains our whole body, but it sets on fire the entire course of life. The entire ups and downs, the ins and outs of our lives can be burned to ash because of the tongue. Not only our individual lives set on fire by our own speech, but the, the, the lives of other people set on fire by our speech. The lives of other people burn to ash because of the restless evil, it says, that is our tongue. The poison... That is our tongue. It says in verse 8, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. I will tell you that for me, these last three years or so have also, in the same way that I can name, I can name probably 50 names of people who use their tongues to encourage. I can also say that in the last three years of being the lead shepherd at this church, I've never in my life uh, had to deal with more poison in the speech of people who claim to be the followers of Christ. And and when I say poison, I mean it gets into my bloodstream and it takes me weeks or months. I can remember verbatim, hateful, critical, condescending, legalistic, judgy things people said to me three years ago that call themselves followers of Christ. They, they, They sometimes start their speech by saying, I've been going to this church for 40 years. I've talked about that before. And then they inject this poison into my stream that takes forever. Have you been blessed by the words of other people? Have you been cursed by the words of other people? James says, be careful. Be careful what you do with your tongue because even though it's tiny, it's a spark that can set the world on fire. It's a deadly poison, a restless evil. Church, we we have work to do in this. We have some great examples of people who use their tongue for blessing, but we've got other people in our church who bless God in the midst of a service like this and then immediately walk out and curse others. 
Curse others because of what they think. Curse others because of what they do. Curse others because of their preferences, because of their skin color, because of their ethnicity, because of the the financial bracket they're in, because of where they live. We, and I'm not just talking about Fullerton Free, but I am talking about Fullerton Free. We have work to do in this regard. It is not enough, he says here, to bless God. It doesn't make sense at all to bless God with our tongues and curse one another. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. Look at what he says here again in 9 and 10. With our tongues we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. It would be like me saying, I think the Ford Automobile Company is awesome. I I just love everything about the Ford Automobile Company. I I love their logo. I got some of their t-shirts. I wear their hats. But I would never drive one of their crummy cars. You know, that doesn't make any sense. Why You love the company, but you don't love the thing that is produced? That's stupid. What, what is the company without its product, right? He's saying here, it doesn't make any sense for us to bless God with our tongues and curse God's creation made in his image. He says, in fact, it, sh- it ought not be. It ought not be. What's he saying? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for us to use this rudder, to use this bit that could control the whole life to burn other people down. How can we say that we love God if we're using our tongues to destroy? He says here, with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brother, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The reality is that, that this is saying you want to know whether a stream is salt water or fresh? You know, you do, you taste it. You want to know whether a tree is producing figs or olives? You taste its fruit. You want to know what's going on in your heart? You want to do an assessment of your heart? You want to, ta- you want to take an exam this morning of what's going on in your heart and what your faith looks like? Listen to the things you've said. Look at the things you've posted. Think about the conversations you've had or even the things you've said in your car as you drive past other people on the freeway. Listen to your own speech and recognize it as an assessment of the spiritual health of your heart. Because the same spring doesn't pump fresh water and salt water. The same tree doesn't pump figs and grapes. James here is remembering the teaching of Jesus who says it's, it's by the kind of tree you are that the fruit will be produced. So what do we do? I mean, if you're like me, you read the text and you think of all the misplaced words, all of the hasty emails, all of the times when you've belittled other people or you've torn them down, all the, other peop- all the times when you've tried to put people into categories or you've tried to place them and judge them based on their positions or their ideas and they are created in the image of God just like you are. So what do we do? Well, well that's an interesting question. What do we do? If we go all the way back to the beginning of James chapter three, it's worth noting here that he says, In verse two, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James is giving us the key here that our speech, and here's the way John Stott sort of summarizes this. The tongue or our speech is the key factor in controlled living. It's not only evidence of spiritual maturity, but the means to it. Our speech or our tongue is not only evidence of spiritual maturity, but it's the means to spiritual maturity. What does that mean? It means that as we work to control our speech, to control our communication, as we, as we harness the power of our tongue for blessing and not cursing, then our whole body comes under control. 
Well, how does that happen? It happens by first recognizing that all of us stumble in many ways. I love the humility of James at the top here. I love that right out of the gate, he goes, look, none of us get it right all the time. You have to give yourself grace and you have to admit openly and honestly that you're going to blow it sometimes, that there are going to be moments like me where your temper flares or you just fire off a hasty thing that you wish you could get back. You have to own the fact that all of us stumble in many ways. He says in verse eight, I think, that even though all the animals have been tamed, that the tongue has not been tamed by mankind. Verse eight, no human being can tame the tongue. There's an implication in that statement in verse eight when it says no human being can can tame the tongue. What's the implication? The implication is that while no human being can do it, God certainly can. God certainly can. So how do we tame the tongue? You can't. You can't do it. Can Can the tongue be tamed? It absolutely can. How? By receiving the implanted word of God. Go all the way back to James 1. He says, anyone who can't bridle their tongue, their religion is worthless, James 1. But he says, in meekness, humility, in a recognition that we all stumble in many ways, receive the implanted word of God, be doers of the word and not hearers only, and put that faith on display. How do we see transformation happen? I think we also have to, instead of dwelling on the words of human teachers who are fallible, I would point you again to Colossians chapter 3. Verse 16 that says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How do we transform our tongue? By letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Not the word of other people. Not the the opinions of 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 our own whims and our own desires. Not our own voice. Let his word dwell in us. What happens? Well, then we begin to speak with the Jesus accent, right? We talk a lot around here about, uh, about being an embassy of the future, about being a kingdom outpost in the middle of Orange County or the north of Orange County or whatever, but a kingdom outpost, an embassy of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And the more we let his word dwell in us richly, you know what happens? You start to get an accent. You can identify other people. You hear them talking, you're like, are you from New Zealand, South Africa? Where are you from? I can tell by your accent, right? How rad would it be if we allowed the word of Christ to dwell in us so richly that when people came into contact with us, they would go, I I can't place it. I can't place your speech. Where, Where are you from? Oh, the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, I work at the embassy. I worship at the embassy of heaven. And my speech has become affected because I'm listening to the king all the time. And I speak with his accent. It's a recognition that we can't do it. It's a humbling ourselves before Christ, receiving the implanted word in meekness. James 1.8 says what? We ask God for wisdom. And we'll talk about that more next week as well. Remembering his word of salvation. And then James 1.20 has already told us we, we put away wickedness. We put away evil. We put away those things. So there's an active striving for us not to gain God's favor, not to gain salvation. That's a gift of grace. But we actively work to shape our tongues to sound like Jesus's. That we would use our voices for blessing and not for curse. As I finish this morning, I just have a couple of questions. The first one is, I wonder if there are some of you in the room, whatever that room looks like, who have the poison of other people's curses coursing through your veins. I wonder if there are some of you whose very lives have been defined by the criticisms and the insults and the sarcasm of others, I want to tell you that that's an abuse of the tongue, that you've been abused by other people. It was never the way God intended the tongue to be used. And if you've been living 
with poison in your veins because of the misplaced words of others, I would want you this morning to open up your hands and allow the truth of who God says you are to replace the lies that have been spoken over you by humans who stumble in many ways. If you're here this morning and your life has been defined by the deception of others, by the curses of others, I pray that God releases you from that and that he speaks his truth over you, that the spirit of God reminds you of your sonship and your daughtership and that you are defined by the truth of who God says you are, not by the misuse of other people's speech. The second question I would have for you this morning, or the second encouragement would be, have you considered who you might encourage, who you might bless? That little tongue in your mouth has the ability to shape and to mold, as we've seen from the beginning of human history. Whose life could you shape? Those that are in your circle. We've been talking over the last couple of months about the fact that we've all got these circles of influence. They're different for each of us. Are there people in your circle that you could bless with your tongue, that you could call in a moment, that you could meet in a distance, that you could send off a quick email or a quick text and encourage and bless and affirm who they are and whose they are? I wonder if there are not ways in which you could use your tongue to invest in your circles right now, today. Maybe the kids sitting at your feet. Maybe the parents sitting behind you. Maybe the grandparents that are only a phone call or a FaceTime away. And the last question this morning is this. What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your heart? And and if you can't answer that really quickly, I would say there's, there's a great sort of home test you could take right where you sit. You want to know what's going on in your heart? Think about what you've said. Think about who you've said it to. Think about the blaze that maybe you've set with your speech in the last many days. Would you repent of that? Would you be aware of it? The ways in which you've stumbled like we all are prone to do. And would you ask God to bring healing and restoration? Would you in meekness submit yourself to the implanted word of God and be a doer of it? So that you won't have to tell people you have faith But by your works, and words are works, your faith will be put on display. That people will recognize you by your kingdom accent. Me too. Me too. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would stir in us a heart to use our speech, both for your glory and the good of others. That we would recognize that there is a recipe in this text for the bridling of our whole bodies that begins with allowing you to control our tongues, you to guide and shape our tongues. Would you give us the humility to recognize the places where we've lit things on fire, where we've injected poison, where we've allowed our tongue to run in restless evil, and instead recognize the great potential to shape and mold, to bless and to give and to grow as we live lives made in your image, a God who gives life and shapes and molds and grows and blesses. Would you help us to be more like you? And we pray that in Christ's name, amen.